Welcome to More in Common. Whether you're new or you've graced us by listening in the past, this is our social experiment to find and create some semblance of unity. And we're doing it by exposing people, their stories, mindsets, and the reasons for having them. Next, we evaluate what we've just exposed, often with our guests live, and then as well we do that in a follow-up episode that is just Keith and I. And lastly, transformation. When warranted, we seek to evolve. By challenging our preconceived notions, we sometimes solidify them, we often change them, and we always strive for growth. Expose, evaluate, evolve. Today, we're back with Lloyd Wilkie. If you haven't heard our first episode with Lloyd, there is a link for it here. Uh, Please go back and take a listen. As in this episode, we go deeper into a lot of the topics that we just covered, covered in a very surface way. So definitely peep it first. On to Lloyd. He's an activist. He's a human relations trainer focusing on law enforcement, education, business, and the nonprofit sectors. He's a mediator. He's a self-defense coach. He's got LA Riot Boxing, which is a, a boxing program, but it's really a leadership program disguised as a boxing program for youth. And he's a singer. In today's conversation, we talk about unconscious or implicit bias. We talk about the school-to-prison pipeline and what that means. We talk about policing. We talk about the Museum of Tolerance here in Los Angeles and the larger network that it is related to, known as the Sites of Conscience. We talk about moral turpitude and much more. Breaking from the norm of, of using a quote from our guests in the episode as the title for the episode... Uh, We're naming this episode A Sweet Remembrance. It is a nod to Lloyd and his family as they traverse rough waters and to serve as a reminder that he and his wife and their progeny are indeed a living legacy. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did recording. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, All right, first topic. Justice. Peace. Social justice. Necessary. Well, welcome back. Appreciate you, Lloyd, taking the time to talk with us again. One of the interesting things about feedback that we got from the last conversation was... Um, and we said this a little bit in the follow-up episode, but just how there it was almost like a carrot dangling in front of the horse, and people felt like they didn't they didn't get enough. They they wanted more, which I thought was great feedback, given that we talked for a little over an hour, and yet there there was still um, people wanted more, and there were certain things that we wanted to dive into, and that we so we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us again, so we can spend a little bit more time on on some of those topics in particular. Really happy to be with you guys. Thank you, and you know. I, I listened to your follow-up, and, and y'all said some real nice stuff about me, so <laughs> I'm really honored to be here, and, uh, you know, uh, thanks. Well, we're excited. Let's jump in. The first thing that we we both 
decided we wanted to go into was unconscious bias. We, we kind of slipped it in there at the very end. <laughs> Uh, I think I think we were trying to wrap, and then we slipped it in, and then we ended up going for another fifteen minutes or so. But this is uh, deeply tied to work you do, mm. and um, I think it would be interesting to just start at the beginning and, and level set on what unconscious bias or implicit bias, like what what is it? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to people when they hear it? And and what what's your work involved? Yeah. So I'm not a I'm not an authority on this, you know. I could I can point you into the into the direction of uh, you know, many experts, um, and there's a lot written on this, and it's been studied up and down by you know capable people. So I guess what I'm saying is this is not something I'm making up, <laughs> and it exists. It's real. It's a fact that all of us are walking around with uh, implicit bias, and that simply means that our brains have uh, have uh, developed in certain ways and uh, we have been influenced throughout our, our lives, the experiences we've had, the things that, that we've um, absorbed from our society and from the people around us and, and, and our experiences um, all contribute to the to formation of, um, of of unconscious bias, right? We're all walking around with it. It's not just uh, something that I'm, I'm accusing one group of people over another of having. Um, we all have it. And would you equate it to racism? No, in no way, right? I mean, sometimes this unconscious bias can be based on race. It can be... <clears throat> We can absorb racist ideology and belief, and 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 you know we can we can absorb that stuff unconsciously, right. and, and 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 in many ways, um, not even be aware that we, uh, you know, that we have this stuff, right? And you know, but it will show up. It will show up at some point. Can you, from from a, an everyday life perspective, before we go into the work that you do with it, do you have a, like from your perspective, I have a thought and an example, but do you have an example that would represent an action of unconscious bias that could be detrimental to another person? <laughs> well, you know, we, we speak about this, you know, most often in terms of, uh, you know, work with law enforcement. But, sure. but okay, let me, let me take, let me get off of them for a little bit. <laughs> okay. Give them a break. Right, give them a break. Let me leave yeah. them alone for a minute. Anyway, yeah. uh, uh, I, I work with educators, mm. right? And, uh, in, in this, in, in the learning environment, the school, right? Uh, a, a teacher may not have an awareness that they have an unconscious bias for or against uh, a, a group of people, for, for example, let's say, um, let's say, uh, girls, mm. right? Mm. And so if this is a math teacher we're talking about, and every time he asks, he or she, yeah, let's say, he, let's say he, okay. Right. Every time he, the math teacher, asks a question of his students, uh, and the girl throws her hand up in the air because she knows the answer, but he instinctively, uh, defers to the boys. Hmm. 
Right. Doesn't know he's doing it. Writes her off. He writes, writes females off. off in general. Right. She can't know math. Right. That's that would be an example of an unconscious. He may, he may not know he's doing it. Uh, there have been some studies where they uh, they videotape teachers and uh, they watch their eye, you know, where their eyes were going, and and they, yeah. and they watch who, who they kept their eyes on, you know, and so if they're you know, and in, in many instances there was you know maybe the one. African American boy in the class was 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 watched very carefully, mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing. So you know, there's unconscious bias that's happening. What's interesting about that example? Um, it it reminds me of uh, an interview I heard about the difference between racism or experience in England versus experience here. And one of this person, it was on the radio, and this is completely not a very specific example, but the, the anecdote plays true in that they they go to a restaurant. Um, in America, in the if you know they're they're black and the the waiter is white, they're less likely to make eye contact. They're shorter with them. They're less likely to have an engaged conversation. Whereas in the UK, in their particular experience, it didn't matter what their color was. They just seemed like they were an everyday person. But here, because we are talking about you know uh, unconscious bias, especially things rooted in in the United States, it's that behavior that you don't know what you're doing or you don't know that you're doing. And I think what your example provides is something that Rodney and I talk about is how stress and specifically in, in policing enhances our actions based on our unconscious biases or our implicit biases. But that example ultimately shows that stress isn't necessary. It, it is just something that we can do in any everyday action that could potentially negatively impact somebody else. Because if that you're that girl, you raise your hand and he doesn't call on you as the teacher, well, where am I? You start feeling invisible or maybe you start being less inclined to raise your hand and now all of a sudden you're not participating as much. Oh, maybe now I'm less interested in math even though I loved it coming into this class. That domino effect of how just a small action like that can can sway other people's lives. Mm-hmm. Right. What well, even, I mean, it's probably even, you could even say it, it regresses our actions because mm-hmm. we, we're going to more of a primitive state. Our Fight, fight, freeze, mm-hmm. uh, flow is the other one. Fight, fight, freeze, oh, yeah, flow. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, reactions versus h- higher thinking. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm glad you went there because you know the implications. You know, it, it might seem something you know really, really simple and 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 inane, uh, but but those things have uh, consequences, right? Uh, life-altering consequences for, for, for people, right? You know, we always talk about the police. I mean, you know, certainly in those situations, it's a life-and-death thing, but it's also a life-and-death thing when this, this young girl's trying to, you know, become a mathematician, <laughs> you know? Well, and then it, it starts to answer the question, why don't why do we have less female engineers? Why do we have less female coders? And So, um, so you do a lot of work in this area as far as implicit bias. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more? I know it's specifically targeted at police, but you also work with educators. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you do around implicit bias? And what I've, what I've seen that I think is, uh, is helpful. Let's put it that way. Um, and I'm, and I'm 
I've, I've tried to actually, this is something I've based my life on anyway at this point, and it's, it's called mindfulness, right? A lot of people, you know, have, uh, have probably heard that term. Um, but in order for me to, to, um, mitigate the impact of, of unconscious bias, I need to spend time reflecting on it and understanding and creating awareness that, you know, that I, that I'm afflicted by it, right? And, and be aware of it. So how do you do that? You, 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 you sort of monitor your own behavior and your own thinking, uh, on, on a constant basis. I mean, and, you know, for instance, if some, someone is sort of, um, you know, maybe I'm teaching a class and some, some students are, you know, one, one student is, uh, in a, inattentive. Right. And he's sort of annoying me now. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get a, I'm trying to teach something and this one student is moving around and he's agitated and he's, you know, he's not paying attention. Uh, he's not making eye contact with me and all that. I have to s- stop for a second and ask myself, why, what about this student is, is causing me to feel this way? Right. Before I just react to the, to the behavior, I need to ask myself, why am I annoyed by him? Right? Is it, is it, what specifically is he, is is it something he's doing or is it something else? Hmm. Right? And, and as I become more mindful of my own thinking throughout the day, I try to do that. And, also, just my own state of being in that moment, trying to uh, maintain a, a, a balanced composure, right? Breathing, those types of things are, are, are connected to this idea of mindfulness. Right? Also, you and uh, you, you know, we talked the last time about meditation. You know, how mm-hmm. it's necessary. Through meditation, we actually can change the composition of the brain. Right? It's been proven scientifically. Okay. So, yep. so, so if what we're talking about is, uh, uh, you know, the brain is, is wired in a certain way, then, then there's only one way to, <laughs> to get at that, you know, for me anyway. And that is mm-hmm. th- through this meditative process and through this reflection, right? And, and this, trying to stay in the moment um, aware, uh, you know, as much as possible. I think what I hear you saying is the same way that we go to a gym and work out our body, we actually need to spend time on our, on our mind and understanding uh, what, what we think. And then within that, what's real and what's not and how it affects us and how we allow it to, Manifest. I think I I think one of the key points, and you mentioned this last time, fleetingly, uh, especially as it pertained to work that you were doing with the police, it's an everyday effort. Um, my wife and I have this conversation a lot when I'm driving. I used to I used to get pretty angry, typical road rager, I suppose, um, 
And, you know, when I'm, you know, when my wife and I were just dating, it's, you know, I could, I could probably get a little angry. Uh, the temper shows up. She didn't like it. And so one of the things that we taught, just talk every single way. What's their story? Are they cutting you off because they're a jerk? Like you immediately think that that's the reason that someone's cutting you off? Or maybe they're in a rush. Maybe their wife is sick. Maybe they're having a bad day. And just start reframing the way you think about the way other people drive because your your immediate inclination is to say, they're an idiot, they're a bad driver, they're, but then there's that moment where you do that exact thing six weeks from now and you think, oh, yeah, but I'm just having a bad day or I didn't get enough sleep last night because my baby woke up, right? There's a reason for you doing it, but there's never an, an, an acceptable reason for the other person. So working through that each and every time, so you, all of a sudden it becomes automatic and you no longer have the road rage. There's like this lack of grace. Like we'll give ourselves the grace, and then, and then the next minute somebody else does it, it's like, oh, you asshole. How dare you? You're also talking about something, you know, you're, you're talking about compassion. Mm. Okay? Mm. So, you know, one of the, one of the things that I'm, I'm understanding, you know, through my own practice is uh, uh, that meditation helps in the development of compassion and empathy for others, right? It, it, as I said, it, it actually does rewire the brain. And, and you know, those things are important. Um, uh, you know, sometimes you may be faced with an aggressive person who is um, argumentative and, you know, hostile. Um, if I can develop compassion for that individual and, and know that they're, they're struggling with something, you know, there's there's some deep pain that they're they're struggling with. It's that's uh, that's put you know that that they're unloading on me at this point. Um, you know, maybe we can have a different kind of an outcome. You know, if, if I approach it from a compassionate place, right? And I, you know, and this connects directly to the work with with law enforcement. You know, I, I I believe truly, and and you know, there's. There's going to be a lot of people who say, oh, no, you're crazy. Um, <laughs> I, I, I believe um, if, you know, if, if they're developing a practice of, uh, of mindfulness, that's, that's why I've titled my, my, my Twitter account Mindful Policing. Mm. Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't told anybody that's what it's about, but <laughs> that's what it's about. <laughs> Um, that going into that. So now you work with police. What does that work look like for like, are, do you, are you training, teaching? I, what does that practical work look like at, um, for you? Okay. So I'm not the, you know, sort of the lead person on this. There's uh there's, okay. you know, there's, I guess you'd call it a hierarchy. There's an, there's an organization at the, at the museum of tolerance and, uh, they, uh, there is an, an established, uh, uh, sort of curriculum that's been developed, um, that, uh, that we're using. My, my main function at the museum is, uh, uh, touring individuals and groups around the museum to, to, to through the exhibits and, um, and engaging them in dialogue around the themes 
that there that that are throughout the museum, right? So you're going to you know, for example, a large portion of the museum uh, is dedicated to um, remembering World War II and and the Holocaust, right? And so as we explore that history and um, and all the theme, you know, all these themes come up that are you know certainly relevant for us to be thinking about and talking about right things about um you know the, a lot of the obvious stuff that, that 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 will come up when you when you think about a, a dictatorship that uh was eliminating its own citizens and, and and killing people uh uh in that way so um you know so that's that's my main function um, there are some workshops that I, uh, that I co-facilitate that have to do with, um, building community trust. Um, uh, but through, through the museum exhibits and through dialogue, um, you know, we have, uh, lots of opportunities to, you know, to really sort of, in, you know, just investigate a lot of issues. Can you, um, it may be- taking a step away from the, the, the policing component for a second, um, help us understand a little bit more about the entirety of the Museum of Tolerance. It's a wonderful place. I've, done, I've been on the tour, and it's, uh, it's eye-opening. So we go through um, World War II, Nazi Germany. Yeah, yeah. Even pre-World War yeah. pre II as well. Yeah. Right? I mean, well, you know, it's, it's very... Hitler's rise. Yeah, you know, we, we, we learn about how, what, what conditions led to uh, led up to World War II and, and the Holocaust. We, we also have a, a, a portion of the museum that's dedicated to more contemporary times. Um, it deals with a lot of the other issues that we're, we're faced with that are all related, you know, to our, our human condition, right? So we've got, um, a section that, that, that deals with hate crimes. Uh, we've got, um, exhibits that, 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 uh, you know, create an awareness around, uh, the power of words, um, individual choice, uh, the, you know, our, our responsibility, assuming responsibility. Um, and then we also have a, a piece on U.S. history that, that talks about the diversity of our nation, um, the, uh, the injustice and intolerance that's, that's occurred throughout our history. And then, but really, Focuses in on all the all those people who stood up, who organized, who united, who spoke out, who fought back against all the hatred and injustice that we've had throughout our history. You know, we try to highlight that aspect of it, so that people are coming out with some uh, some hope and some uh, uh, inspiration. Hopefully, to, to to get out here and, and do stuff. You know, we've got we got pieces on uh, genocides that have that have occurred in our own times. You know, um, so, you know, there's there's a lot in the museum. There's there's a lot in there. Where is the museum? In it's in located in Beverly Hills on on uh, Pico Boulevard. Are are there other institutions like it around the country or that you know of? Yeah. So actually, the, the Museum of Tolerance is part of a network of uh, sites. We call they're they're called the International Sites of Conscience. Um, I would I would Google that. You know, if you're traveling, there, there are a lot of places you want to visit. I just got back from uh, the National uh, Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. 
um, mm-hmm. on a trip to, you know, uh, a conference, a youth conference. I had, I brought, uh, four young men with me. Uh, and, and that's the, that's the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was, uh, on the day that he died. Um, it's been developed into a, a museum and, uh, it's, it's a, you know, I recommend it highly for anybody traveling. Go there. Yeah, there, I mean, there are all all types of museums from, you know, Yad Vashem in Israel to, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the Central High School uh, in um, Little Rock, Arkansas is, a, is one of the sites of conscience. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of places like that. And the thing from, from the tour that we did, a lot of things came up, but, I, you know, one of them was that, uh, you know, that whole thing, like, if you don't know your history, it's, you're doomed to repeat it. And walking through, I mean, you're walking down a street in pre-Hitler Germany. People are at a cafe eating. It's an, and, and, and not long after that, you're in a concentration camp. And the question is, how does that happen? Mm-hmm. How does something like Hitler, Hitler didn't, his first attempt at, at, at um, taking office was unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he tried it multiple times and it's like, well, what happens to allow that on that scale? And then break, trying to break that down. I think that education is, is monumental because if you don't, if we don't talk about it, we don't think about it, it'll happen again. It, it, ha- it yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask two, two parts on, cause you take these tours, um, I, I imagine there, especially in LA at the MOT, there's a there's a general you know diversity to the tour group. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you also say you engage in conversation. What does that look? I like? I think it varies depending on mm-hmm. on the group. I, you know, my experience over the years. Uh, Let's say there's it's a no, law enforcement. Yeah, <laughs> law enforcement like, group. You know, because <laughs> well, because I wanted to ask the question like, yeah. how do you approach mm. the conversation of bias? With a group that's, I think that's probably a buzzword for that group—a hot button. <laughs> that they're like, no, <laughs> okay. And I mean, even within a law enforcement group, you are going to have a continuum, you know, of people. Sure, uh, you know, right? I mean, they're not a monolithic the, group, exactly. So you, you know, there are going to be people who are very receptive. There are going to be people who are very resistant. Um, uh, and then again, there are different types of, of law enforcement groups. There's the group of recruits. They're usually, usually, you know, very young uh, and brand new to the game. Uh, then you'll have like I just spent two days with um, with sergeants uh, from all up over the state, and there were about twenty five of them, and they've all been, you know, uh, actively uh, in the business for you know twenty years maybe um, mm-hmm. or more, and so there, there there's a difference, you know, in that. Then you also have a, uh, uh, we will also have groups that are in some way mandated to be there because, mm-hmm. you know, it's just your turn, <laughs> right? And, 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 you know, sometimes within that group, there are people saying, you know, why did I have to come here? So they, there's, you know, there's a certain resistance from that person, right? Um, and then you have to kind of work on that. And so to your point, um, you know, it, it begins with me, in, in, in particular, in my case, it begins with me sort of building rapport with the group, right? Uh, because I'm not, I'm not a cop, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, some, it, one, once they get to know me and, and I start revealing little bits and 
a more of, of who I am, they find out that, you know, I'm the, the furthest you're going to get from a cop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? And As we learned a little bit last time. <laughs> right? And so, and then, you know, sometimes that turns the heat up, you know, uh, but oftentimes, you know, if, if I've, if, if I've, been successful in the beginning at, at, at in some way building rapport with the group and with, with all the individuals in the group then we can actually get to a place where we can have a real conversation and and you know and, be, and it can be respectful and it can you know and, and both of us can learn something you know um, that's what I'm after yeah when you say you mention it when they find out more about you it turns the heat up <laughs> What, what does that look like and how do we get out of that? Like, how do we cool that fire? <laughs> to get back to the fact that we're both just people. Yeah, well, I mean, again, I think if, if you're successful in the beginning mm-hmm. um, with, you know, with the, with the, with the, you know, let's, let's get to the human part first. Right. And then, then, you know, we can overcome all that. You know, we can see, you know, as you then, as you learn more about me, then you, you know, it's the same thing with any, any sort of relationship, right? As you, you know, you, you, you begin to know the person in the beginning. Okay. I like this person, whatever. And then as you get, you hang around them long enough, you start seeing all the, oh, oh wait a minute. That's ugly. That's not all going to be in the beginning. We're, we're on our P's and Q's uh, in the dating phase. Right. <laughs> Right, you know, so it, that it's to be expected that you know, somewhere along the line, uh, there's going to be something you don't like about me. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You know, I, I think we get over it. I, 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 yeah. You can tell probably through these couple of interviews that I try to use humor too. I think mm. humor. I think humor is is uh, is a great you know way to make it happen. Some folks would say. That um, that I have uh, developed a, 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 a way of um, making myself not so threatening to you know t- to people. Maybe maybe hmm. that's part of it uh, too. Um, and I don't know if it's a, a I don't I don't know I don't have all the answers to that. Um, but you know if if people don't see me as a threat. Then you know. Then perhaps they uh, they can open up a little bit more. Two thoughts. In my in my personal philosophy, I actually uh, one of the one of the lines is humor. Uh, humor unites. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a great jumping off point because we all, we all laugh. But then I, it's been suggested to me that I'm like the least threatening looking black dude on the planet. So that's why I can get <laughs> along with anybody. Uh-huh. So I think there's something to being able to. Uh, lower the level of threat mm-hmm. in order to have a, a human conversation. I mean, I, I don't do it. I just apparently look like Webster. So it just works it for just me. It happens, right? It's working, right? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, you know, I can see that. Yeah, I can see what, you know, what, 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 it is, it is a reality. Let's, let's just say that if it's a reality. If I was six, Three and you know two hundred two twenty five and and maybe m- my skin was darker and and you know I I was you know uh, I, I might be more more threatening to somebody right yeah. um, but you know uh, on uh, appearance alone I guess I don't I don't appear to be that threatening. I want to take a 
big 90 degree turn here and ask you how th- this is an interesting topic as it relates to unconscious bias. There it is right, right there. The idea that a black person is threatening and it's a matter of scale on I'm less mm-hmm. threatening mm-hmm. versus I'm a, I could probably go on that that tour and the feedback would be uh, maybe I'm not approachable. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's more of a human characteristic rather than a race characteristic. People aren't generally going to say I'm threatening unless I have tattoos and Mm -hmm. ear piercing and like things that I decided to do versus, you know, your your natural state. Mm -hmm. How how does I mean, that is a reality of the unconscious bias of the people coming in no matter what. Like, how do you I guess it's a general question. How do you how do you feel about that? How do we mitigate that? And how do we break down that that unconscious bias at a societal level? Because that's that's part of the problem, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that's it's a I think it's a huge part. And, um, you know, just thinking through this right here with you right now, I mean, I'm just going to have to take it right back to mindfulness again. Right. We, we, we just have to be mindful that we're doing it. You know, mm-hmm. it has to be brought to our awareness that that it's happening, right? Um, just us sitting here talking about it, we're br- we're bringing it to mind. It's it's uh, uh, we know that it is happening. I I know that young a young African American male uh, who you know is wearing a hoodie just looks threatening to some people, right? They're threatened by that, and and. and they, they may not know why, but they're, you know, or, and in, in some cases, they do know why. Right. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is conscious for some, but, but unconscious for many. Um, once a, I don't know. I don't know how we as a society. One conversation at a time, I guess. Yeah. So... Oh, I was going to say, so how does the MOT structure this? Because that's ultimately what's trying to be done with the police, right? Mm-hmm. Is breaking those down so I approach people the same way without drawing my weapon just because I perceive a threat versus, you know, a white guy who I may approach even though he has an AK-47 around his shoulder, right? Um how does the Museum of Tolerance go about that with police specifically? We, and- we, we spend a lot of time in dialogue and during the dialogue, you know, these issues are raised and, and discussed. There are some workshops on racial profiling. There are, um, you know, there are uh, workshops on building community relations and um, on the changing role of law enforcement. Um, those are some of the, you know, the basic workshops that are, that are you know, continuing uh at the museum um i you know i've had a lot of ideas and i've been sitting around sketching out you know curriculum ideas for 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 other things um we're getting into uh more at the at the museum on um what's called procedural justice um and you know that's something you might want to google at some time uh and and then you know again the implicit bias stuff we we, we don't we don't uh, currently uh, have s- workshops on that yet but it is a part of the the discourse that's happening 
um, mm. in in every in every workshop and in every uh, dialogue. You you mentioned this last time that you have a couple ideas. What are some of your So, you know, I, I, I said, I call it mindful policing. It starts with mindfulness, really. If I can, if I can find, and I've been, you know, trying to find a way to, uh, to bring that into policing. Um, break are, down the resistance. Are you, yeah, because if, because at the end of the day, if somebody sits through a workshop and they don't want to be there, they're not no. bought in, nothing changes. Right. And this is with anything, any kind of learning. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with, uh, um, Las Vegas PD implicit bias training. This happened three years, three years ago. Um, there's a really good story on it. And essentially, you know, there's a lot of resistance to it. They brought in this group of trainers. Actually, it was a specific trainer. She was a police officer. So that kind of helped, but her being female didn't help. And, um, Year over year, the number of gun police, gun-related incidents went down 96% after this train. And so here's something that I want to share this real quick. It's kind of a long story, but um, in uh, in the story, uh, one of the officers talks about how this became real for him. They had an active shooter somewhere in Nevada. And so the way police are taught, and this is a police officer recounting this, the way he's taught, active shooter um, usually means white male. So that's automatically what his brain went to, active shooter, white male. So before he even gets to the scene, right. he's thinking, we're approaching I'm looking a white for male. a white male. And they didn't have any details. They just had active shooter. And... Then, before they get there, they get a notice, active shooter on the move. So, then he's like, oh, okay, I'm looking for, it could be a white male, but it might be a black male now, or African-American. And I think they went into, the shooter went into a Walmart. He proceeds into the Walmart. They're getting people out of the store. Um, he walks past an aisle and almost completely disregards the aisle because he sees a woman. And then beyond the woman, he sees a man. And he saw the woman and kind of went by and then he was like, oh, that could be the shooter, the, the guy in the back. It was a white guy in the back. So he came back and walked down the aisle and proceeded to walk directly past the woman who pulled out a weapon and fired at him point blank. Luckily, she missed. Turns out it was a couple. They were together. But his training had him overlook the possibility that it could have been two people. It could have been a white female. It could have been a Latino female. Latina. It could have been African American. Could have been. It could have been all of these other things. But the, the way the training was structured, he didn't even re- like. He realizes afterwards as he's breaking it down. How did I almost get shot point blank? I overlooked her. Right. In my it's mind, a- she wasn't a suspect. It's like I ride motorcycles here in LA, which is highly dangerous. But there are studies that tell us that for a motorist, for somebody in a car, they people actively disregard the single headlight. They don't see it. Like, if I'm behind somebody, I, I have to know that they do not see me on a motorcycle. It's crazy, right? Our brain's a powerful thing. 
it's an interesting story about how explicit training mm-hmm. creates implicit bias. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. With the police officer, because he wasn't aware necessarily. Yes, he was looking for a white male, mm-hmm. but was he, you know, you become trained, mm-hmm. right, to make muscle memory so you can react faster in a dangerous situation mm-hmm. that all of a sudden the, the training itself, let alone the training that we experience in society every single day through conversation, through media, through TV, through movies right. that ultimately train us to think a certain way. Right. And that goes back to your point about mindfulness meditation. Well, yeah, no, that's where I was going to take it right back there. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not privy to, you know, all of their uh, tactical training. I have been able to go to the academy uh, on occasion and, and sit through some, some of their trainings. Um, and, and I've actively tried to do more of that. Um, there's not a, there's not a whole lot of support for that really, but, um, I, I want to know what they're trained on, uh, so that I can offer some things that I think might be missing. Right. So I do the best I can at, at trying to f- learn more and more about them, you know, through, you know, going to the academy or I'm, I'm actually scheduling a, another ride along, um, in the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, and things like that so that I understand more about the training that they do get so that I can actually, you know, create the things that I think might might be missing that I think are important. And that's why, again, I call it mindful, mindful policing, because these are it's kind of a list of things I want a police officer to be mindful of. Right. If he's policing in my community. And I, you know, I truly believe that there's a room somewhere for the people of the community to play a role in the training of the law enforcement that, that, that is in their community. Right. I think it's necessary. And I think it's, it's, it, it, that's, it's, it's the key to this whole thing. Um, you know, it, it was raised, uh, when President Obama brought experts to Washington, D.C. over a period of time and asked them to, 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 you know, to describe what, you know, the future of policing was going to look like. And these experts all came together. There was one agreement was that the citizens should play a role in some way in the training of law enforcement. I got that's that. I think that's where the key is. Mm. What is in from your what is that role? So, I mean, I have some extreme ideas on this, but um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I know this extreme like a civilian sits with an officer on every run extreme. Well, they don't need to do that. I mean, that could, be, that could that. be dangerous, you know, in some in some instances. So I know there's a project. There's a little pilot that, that, that's been discussed in, in, in one division here. Uh, a friend of mine has been working on it for a couple of years, and and I've you know been uh, trying to contribute to that. Um, is it's where you know let's say your local your local precinct um, receives a new officer. You know that officer has been transferred in, or you know comes from the academy, or, or transferred from transferred from another division. That individual has to then go through a process of uh, of community um, training, right? So that officer now has to be introduced to all of the the local leaders in the community, 
right? And uh, and and you know, be taken on a tour by that community member. Uh, you know, there may be some sort of a committee or something of people that does this, <clears throat> right? That takes that that individual around and and uh, and introduces them to the, the, the who the who the, all the players are in in our community and mm-hmm. and um, explains to them, you know, uh, you know, the history. Right and uh, and uh, uh, and the, you know the ins and outs of the community. Right, that's kind of one version of it. But I I take it a step. I take it a kind of a step further. I would love to have this happen, and there's going to be a lot of resistance to this. But um, I think that there should be a council in some some sort of a council. I'm not going to define it, but some sort of a council of individuals within a community that when police officers come to that community. Um, they can they can they cannot become a police officer in my community until they have passed our academy oh okay so That's... they just went through the the police academy okay and they graduated but now they have to go through a citizens academy right and to, and, and until they pass that one they can't they don't get a badge wow. and a gun That's in my community right I can and, see a lot of resistance to that. That's oh, huge! Idea. Huge resistance. Yeah, yeah. But but think about it. I mean, I mean, just try to think of it from um, a different lens. Um, you know, I in previous days there was a village. The village raised a group of young, who young men. Who were, and women who were, who were the next generation of warriors, right? Those warriors were groomed and instructed by the elders and taught the survival skills and, and the, other, the other ethics and the, the values of the community. They, they could not become a warrior until they went through that process, right? After that process was completed, there was a there was a celebration and that individual became a warrior and, and responsible to take care of the needs of that community. It, that was an individual now that everybody in the community knew they could trust because they were a part of the community. Mm-hmm. We raised this individual, right? Now, I know this is silly and I mean, maybe silly to some. To me, it's, it, it, would be, it would be critical for us to be able to, that's how you build trust. Mm-hmm. And both ways. And and if if our warriors, they they call themselves warriors. They want that that, that that's the that's that's at, at kind of at the at the center of who they really are, you know. And and a warrior, as I I think I said this in my previous uh, visit with you guys, um, I, when I teach my my young people, you know, in my boxing club, we call ourselves warriors, or I call them warriors. I'm an elder. Mm. These young these young warriors are responsible to take care of three things. You take care of yourself, your family, and your community. Right? I believe that if we can build that kind of community, right, we, we can actually have public safety and we can have trust um, built. Uh, with law enforcement, this is going to be a crazy idea for a lot of people on both sides of this argument. Is that the key thing you think is lacking? Trust, trust of trust from, uh, I guess, both ways. Yes, yeah. 
you know, when I when I mentioned earlier something called procedural justice, right? That's the, this this new uh, kind of buzzword that's that's circulating in law enforcement, right? Um, it, it really speaks to their uh, their interactions with the public, right, and building trust. Um, but it but that trust leads to legitimacy, right? Um, you are seen as a legitimate authority in my community when that trust is there. Right? That trust doesn't exist. You, you're illegitimate to me. You have no jurisdiction over me because I don't trust you. Right. And so we, your, 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 your power, your authority is, uh, is, is illegitimate. <laughs> the example would be, uh, Ferguson. Right. Mm. right? I had an, it, it, a sergeant was wanting to argue with me about Mike Brown yesterday. And he said, yeah, it turns out that hands up, don't shoot thing was a lot of, you know, BS, whatever, whatever, because it, that's not how it went down. I said, you know, you can pick out this one in, individual, right, in this one case, and you, you could disc- you could talk a, you know, a lot about the, the specifics of the case. But what it does is it pointed out, what it ended up doing was pointing out the larger issue, which was Ferguson was a cesspool. <clears throat> the the police were in collusion with the court system and the city, and they were just pimping the citizens of Ferguson. And they were abusing people. And it's all in the, in the Department of Justice reports. They went in and, and investigated all of that. And you could see that they had lost their legitimacy. Right. People in Ferguson fucked the police. You know what I mean? Because they knew they had been abused by the police up to this point. So it, it, it was just it was a, it was the it was the water they're swimming in. Right. So you 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 develop that that I that, you know, there's no trust. There's there's no legitimacy. So then you can Which, you could easily see how Mike Brown would say, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't see you as a legitimate authority. I don't I don't respect your authority. I don't respect and you. then it becomes the war zone that you hear. Like I I I know police. I have friends and family that are police. I, you hear about war zone. You hear about the band of brothers. Right. I mean, it is it's us. It's us versus them, which is terrifying to me. Um, I have a I have a question about this concept of community um, and what it means to you, because when like this is uh, an additional challenge. I love this idea. I think it's a really great idea to bridge the gap between citizens and, and the authority of the police. However, we live in a largely or uh, an increasingly individualistic society, mm-hmm. right? Like I came into my neighborhood. I live in a cul-de-sac in Ohio and it took three months before I first met my first neighbor whom I have not, I've talked to once since, and that was over a year ago. Um, and it took about, I don't know, nine, 10 months before I met my other neighbor who we maintain regular contact. And there's some level of, and I'm just talking about the community of my cul-de-sac, right? Like just trying to simplify it. But, you know, everybody tries to kind of maintain themselves and versus, you know, we've got media, we've got a lot of different distractions and other things. So how do we then 
increase the sense of community so that not only are we trusting those who have the authority to police us, but we can trust each other to represent what we want to be as a community. Man, I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Do you know? No. <laughs> I, I think I might have some ideas, but no, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Do you see that being part of the challenge, I guess, is probably a better question, being from your experience? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, um, there's a it goes even past that to distrust of, 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 of people in my community. You know, um, not that I don't know them, I'm, I don't trust them. You know, I, I so I don't want to get to know you. I don't, I don't want to know you. You know, I think yeah. white, black, indifferent. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, yeah. I keep it pushing. You know that. I think that's where we keep walking, bro. Kind of, kind of where we're at, and it's it's it is kind of um, disheartening in a way. You know, for for somebody like me, I come from a culture where you know we hug everybody. You know, yeah, that's back in the day, but you know, uh, today it's it's it is. I, I think. Uh, uh, a little, a little rougher around the edges. Speak said it in our first episode. Go up to somebody and shake your hands because I would argue that you know, as we talk about this unconscious bias component, mm -hmm. that not only do we have unconscious bias about people of other color, people of other gender, but we have it of just people that we see. Mm -hmm. I don't want to talk to you for whatever reason because I'm not going to. Mm -hmm. um, and and it creates this this bubble that we all live in. But we bring people in, and the more people we bring in, the more we trust them. But it creates this, and maybe we'll talk about this later. This us versus them. Mentality. Mm -hmm. and thus I'm not willing to walk up to somebody introvert or extrovert ir ir irrelevant I'm not willing to walk up to somebody and say hey Today's going to be a good day, right? And how are you? And my name is. Mm. And then, you know, it can be a quick small talk conversation, move on. But building that trust that way, it's, it's harder and harder. But I think it's more and more and more necessary. I, don't know. I wasn't planning on doing this, but I'll share a couple of my own uh, unconscious bias. Uh, you brought this up last time. A lot of, uh, surprisingly enough, a lot of bias comes from black to black. Um and it's, it's really not surprising because it's a human thing. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, but not not long ago, across the street where I walk my dogs, uh, a new family moved in. And it was a, a black family. And they were like, the son had like all of his friends helping move everybody in, like the football team. And I turned a corner. And I was like, ah, oh, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> and, and like, I was partially joking, but had that thought. The next thing that happened was, like, it's a very Asian neighborhood that I live in, in Gardena. Uh, it, it's interesting because Gardena is about 25% African-American, 25% Latino, 25% white, and 25% Asian. I happen to live in the Asian part. And uh, two neighbors who, who I will not name that I know pretty well were standing outside. And as I was walking up, they're talking to each other. And I hear them. And they're like, oh, yeah, I saw them. Saw so him pull up, and uh, and then they saw me walk up, and they're like, "Oh, hey, Rodney." Uh, uh, well, and then they're like, they just looked at each other, and like, "Well, we'll see how it goes." And I wasn't mad at him because I was like, I literally just did the same, same thing, thing as I turned the corner. <laughs> as I turned because I'm like, "Hey, you know what? We will see." <laughs> like, yeah, I, but I went down and talked to him. They're cool, man. Like, 
it's just that immediate story. We, we got to get past it. Okay, so look, I wanted to pivot a little bit. Um, I have another question about uh, mindfulness and policing and then taking that into prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, it, and the question has to do with the, the number 300. Mm. Heard you on another podcast talk about, and you t- actually brought up 300 in our last uh, episode. And so it relates to both um, policing here in LA specifically and the prison pipeline. Yeah. And so the question is, how, how, what, how, how does it relate to policing? Mm-hmm. And then I want to get into like what you're doing. What When you say you... You're going up and down the prison pipeline, trying to try to beat on it, trying to trying to trying to fix it. What does that mean? I mentioned that in the other podcast, it, you know, that came up. I've been focused on a couple of specific issues in relation to uh, um, the police. And one is that there's been 300, and, and I think we mentioned this in our in our last uh, meeting. Um, there have been 300 individuals, civilians, that have been uh, killed by police officers since our current district attorney has been in office, and she's in her second term now, I think. Um, Jackie Lacey uh, in Los Angeles County, and there have not been any prosecutions of any officers that have been involved in those, in those killings. Right. Um, you probably heard me say that, that I guess that means we should pat ourselves on the back because we have a, a, a nearly perfect police department and sheriff's department in our County. Right. That, that whenever they've used deadly force, it was certainly justified and within policy. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Either we, we will, we must assume that, or we must assume that, um, somebody's not doing their job because clearly there, there had to have been, you know, at least one or two that might have, that might have been, you know, a, a problem. Okay. Uh, the other number 300 that, 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 that comes up that I've been focused on is the, um, that within the last year or so, uh, the, the sheriff in LA County, uh, his name's McDonald. He, uh, compiled a, uh, file that contains the names of 300 of his own deputies that are on the force that, uh, in his view are problematic. Um, that, uh, that really what he finds in their, in their personnel files is that they have been found I, uh, to have some degree of, um, of, of uh, the word is moral turpitude, right? Hmm. Moral turpitude uh, is, the, is the word that's used in regard to this. So that, there, that there's a, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to say it correctly. You know, I've, I've been back and forth with these things and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want some to questionable decision making morally driven. Thank you very much. Oh, you you helped me. You helped me. Oh my god. <laughs> Moral turpitude. Moral turpitude. Word of the words of the day. I'm using yeah. that. And so that means that, that 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 individual, if they were called up on a trial, right? You know, 
to, to testify, there would there, there may be some issues with that individual, right? Um, can I can I ask two quick questions? Mm-hmm. Just just to to level set perspective here yes. on numbers. Yeah. Of the three hundred deaths by police in the last episode, um, it was made like we we maybe we made the assumption that it was unarmed. Yeah. Um, and then we said unarmed probably like seven times <laughs> after that when it was really just three hundred. Do you know how many were unarmed of that three hundred? Is that reported? I I don't know. I okay. don't know that. So, you know, I, 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 I mistake, I mistakenly said, that's why, I, oh, I, I gotta be careful. You know, right. I, I don't want, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be guilty of fake news, you know. <laughs> Neither do we. Uh-uh. Uh, but we don't, do you know if that data exists? <laughs> or is it suppressed? Let's, let's say it, it data. Oh, God. Data and police. <laughs> th- th- those two things rarely exist. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's difficult to say because of the lack of transparency. Mm. There, therein lies kind of the rub for me. So, speaking of lack of transparency, I learned a lot about LA, like how policing works in California, and mm-hmm. um, we were talking about oversight committees uh, in that panel, and people were asking police about it. And afterwards, I talked to one of the sheriff um, or captain of the Long Beach Force um, about the oversight committee, the civilian panel. And his comment to me, unsolicited, was, you know what we're really good at? We're good at picking and finding the citizens that love us to be on our oversight committee. Hmm the ones that see no problem with anything that we do and they don't have a problem with us in general because whatever, like they're just, they're great citizens. Right. Um, we don't go out and find anybody in the community that has struggles. Um, we're with getting along with us and us with them. We don't, we don't invite them to the committee. And I, I mean, talk about trust, talk about transparency. Um, that could be a way maybe to, Hmm. Um, going back real quick, just yeah. to yeah. to level set on the numbers, because we're going back to that. I want to go back to oh, like yeah, 300. Yeah, yeah, 300. yeah, yeah, 300 deputies that have moral turpitude. Questionable, yeah. Out of uh, questionable moral turpitude. Yeah. How many deputies are there oh, in yeah. total? Yeah, so I think the sheriff has mm, over 10,000 employees. I don't know okay. that they're all, you know, sworn deputies, but, okay. you know. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a small fraction of his his employees, you know, have some questionable moral turpitude. But one is bad enough, you know. What I mean? Yeah, if I and already those know three hundred, <laughs> those three hundred reframe uh-huh. how people's implicit bias is towards the other nine thousand seven hundred uh, potential yeah. employees so, of so, the deputies. So office. depending on what you know infraction they've committed or been accused of, right? Um, they're still out on the streets. Those those three hundred officers, right, and and they're doing whatever it is they're doing, and and hopefully they've, you know, I guess we're we're to hope that they've all cleaned up their act. But well, we don't know who they are. We don't know what they've done. Mm-hmm. Here's the here's the the kicker to the whole thing was that, um, you know, the sheriff wanted to turn over that list of three hundred over to the DA's office, right? But the 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 um the um lawyers for the union sued the 
uh, sheriff to make sure that he was unable to let go of that list. Right. And so to, you know, in order to protect these, these officers, you know, or these deputies from, you know, whatever. But my understanding now, having had a conversation with somebody in, in internally is that if one of these deputies gets called up on a trial, then that file will, will, will show up. So it can still, it, it exists within the context. Mm-hmm. It, says it just can't be made public because of the, union. the fact that it exists means that it can be exposed. It's just got to be exposed through the proper legal channels. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that dude no. has to commit some act that gets him on the court, but then you tie it back to the DA's action that there have been no prosecutions of any of these 300 deaths of citizens. So if there are no prosecutions, the deputy sheriff can't release the list without legal authority but the DA is effectively suppressing that legal authority by not charging anybody in any of these cases. <laughs> How is that ultimately going to happen? Yeah, right? it kind of all works together, doesn't it? Yeah, a little bit of little talk about transparency. Yeah, so you know, th- those are those are some of the things I worry about. Or I don't worry about. I I I'm active around those. Well, the and and the way I I think. To amplify the point you're making, Keith, the 300 out of, let's say 10,000 employees, they're not all deputies, but 300 out of 10,000 that represent the sheriff's organization. So, you have a very small batch of bad apples that are coloring how people look at the force, right? Like, um, well... I don't, you know, I I shy away from that term "bad apples." I mean, I know there are bad apples, right? But mm-hmm. I don't I don't like to uh, give uh, give uh, law enforcement a pass on 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 cultural issues that they have, you know, uh, you know, by by saying that that the, the, these individuals are the are the problem because you know they they the the acts that that got them on that list. Uh, were probably things that were condoned in the past by the culture mm-hmm. that existed under the previous sheriff, right? So Baca, if you recall, Lee went Baca. to jail, okay, because he uh, promoted a culture, uh, you know, of corruption or, or or abuse or something. You know, there was a whole culture that was going on prior to this new sheriff coming in. And so I think what I'm, I guess what I'm encouraged by was that he actually took the step to, to, to try to ferret out some of these ferret individuals. Out and, and one. So I, I guess I challenged that just a little bit by saying, well, yeah, okay. That culture may have existed, but the, the, the guy in charge now has a investigated and B was ready to turn over and was stopped so by, I try to give him, I'm trying to give him some credit for that, yeah, okay, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and mm-hmm. but he was stopped by the, by the union. Which promotes, that's a piece of this ecosystem of uh, promoting this type of behavior. Uh, yeah. Like if we're trying to get it out of the system, why is the union not okay? Like it, Because the union is know, only the, there to protect it's its the, people, the, a.k.a. It's make it's money. the entirety of its people how, and all however, that stuff. However, they really wanted to protect them. <laughs> they would, they would, they would be on the side of airing out all of this stuff, so that so that they can they can then be 
secure in the knowledge that 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 stuff is on the up and up, and folks are becoming uh, more and more, uh, you know, trustful of of of, of the share. Mm. Does that make or sense? Or at the very or, yeah, or at the very least, being supportive of taking them off the streets, right? So that if they don't want this list exposed to the public, that they're limiting these officers' ability to put themselves in a position that could then potentially be prosecuted and ultimately reveal this list. Right, and create more problems for us anyway. I mean, you know, if, yeah, if I've got exactly. if I've got you know, as you say, bad apples in my in my group. And I'm trying to protect my officers. The, the the way to protect them is get rid of them bad apples. That's it, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think that's my point. Like <laughs> bad apples, yeah, and potentially bad term. But the, mm-hmm. the 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 point, like you've got a group of bad actors, a group of yeah. people that are known to have <laughs> poor moral turpitude. God, I love that. That's fantastic. Turpitude. The way it the way it comes off the tongue. It's right. like a, it's like a fine uh, je ne sais quoi. You know, it's just uh... now if you if you if you said it with a British accent, I would really then buy it. <laughs> with reprehensible moral turpitude. You are the smartest person in the room right now. <laughs> You've just jumped a hundred IQ points. Uh... <laughs> Uh, um, but I mean, those three hundred yeah. are—I I mean, in my estimation, like if you if you go from the, like the anti-police, like the if you go to somebody who hates the police, they're looking at those three hundred like that's how I look at police. Yeah, for sure. Right, and so every cop they see is one of them three is bad, <laughs> and and we <laughs> three sitting here know that that's not the case, right? Ah, it's Rodney. I'm back. Yes, that did just abruptly end because there is so much more good content that we had to break this up into two episodes. So there will be a part two releasing very shortly for your eardrums to uh, continue the conversation. Until then, expose, evaluate, and evolve. <laughs>